You're listening to Consolidate That. All right. Well, let's get going. So hi, everybody. Very excited to uh, see everybody on the podcast. We seem to have over 200 subscribers. So thank you guys for joining us today. Uh, We're going to talk about an interesting topic. We're going to talk about veterinary consolidation outlook, pushing beyond your current plateau. That's sort of the topic that we have. And um, I'm uh, uh, very excited to introduce uh, our two very prominent speakers. So we have John Volk. Uh, he's a senior consultant at Bracky Consulting, uh, the largest consulting firm serving the global animal health, veterinary, and pet care markets. John, if I can ask you to introduce yourself, that'd be great. Hi, thank you. I've been, um, yes, uh, I've been with Bracky Consulting since 1994 and uh, have been following industry consolidation, kind of monitoring it uh, for probably the last 20 years. And I've uh, participated in about a dozen um, recapitalization events uh, for consolidators as a consultant um, over the last eight to eight to 10 years. So uh, very, very interesting topic and glad to be here this morning. Thank you for joining us. And we have Dr. Kurt Phillips. He's a founder and CEO of Cityway Animal Clinics. It's a network of five veterinary practices in downtown Indianapolis. Kurt, if I can ask you to give a couple words about yourself. Yeah, thanks for having me, Ivan. Uh, Kurt Phillips, Cityway Animal Clinics in Indianapolis, Indiana. I graduated from Purdue University School of Veterinary Medicine in 1996 and was uh, fortunate enough to be able to purchase my first practice, the practice I was an associate at in uh, 1999 to early 2000. So a young entrepreneur at 29 and a half years of age who didn't know much and uh, was thrust into the uh, entrepreneurship of business ownership, of veterinary business ownership and have just uh, really enjoyed the ride ever since. Excellent, thank you for that introduction. And today we're going to discuss what's going on in the veterinary consolidation space and uh, what is the future of it? Obviously a very important topic and uh, sort of the, the market is frothy, the multiples are high. This is happening for the past you know, two de- decades in our domain. And it's interesting to see the outlook of the specialists on what's gonna happen in the future and what may influence the industry. Uh, we usually don't do any formal presentations, but today we're lucky to have John and he agreed to share some of the key findings from Baraki. So John, the floor is yours. I'm gonna share your slides and please uh, tell me when to move forward with them. So let me just share okay. the screen here. Happy to do that. Yeah, you can, this title slide, you can go to the next one. Thanks. So I think a little uh, little history is good for perspective. Um, you know, VCA Veterinary Centers of America was established in 1986 and really uh, started the, the consolidation of veterinary practices. It deployed a, a technique that was used in many other industries, which that is rolling up small locally owned businesses. Then over the, you know, VCA got started, then over the years, there were a number of uh, companies that, that kind of copied what VCA did, and many of those were acquired by, by VCA after they had uh, 20 or 30 practices. Uh, one of the things I find interesting is during um, much of the 90s and early 2000s, the percentages of practices owned by consolidators was pretty steady at about 5 to 6%. The reason for that was that even though con- um, uh, consolidators were buying practices, the number of practices in the industry was growing. So when VCA started, there were about uh, 16,000 small animal clinics, and now they're roughly 30,000. So the size of the industry has doubled. It was really um, 
following the Great Recession when um, the financial community saw that there was a great deal of resilience in the veterinary field, the animal health field in general, that um, investment in consolidation really took off. So uh, you can see here, this is, shows the trend. So uh, 10, 10 uh, years ago, there were about 24,000 practices, about 6% were owned by consolidators. And today we're up to about 30,000 practices and about 20% of those. So while the number of practices has grown, uh, the, the penetration of consolidation has, has outpaced that. So um, 2020 was a banner year for consolidation. Uh, we calculate that about a thousand practices in the U.S. were acquired by consolidators. Certainly like, like everything else in the U.S., things shut down um, in March and April as, as uh, we came to grips with the COVID pandemic. But then starting in late April, early May, things really started ramping up and fourth quarter consolidation activity was just intense. We think it's possible that um, consolidator purchases even overtook independent transactions for the first time last year. And if we look at the current status, about 70% of specialty practices are owned by consolidators and more than 20% of general practices. Uh, what's interesting though, is that because consolidators tend to acquire uh, the larger practices, the share of uh, pet care done by consolidators, we estimate is now in the neighborhood of 35 to 40% of total pet care. So um, why was, were, was activity so intense in 2020? I think there are a number of reasons. One is that 2020 was a ban a year for many practices. Their income was up, which meant that their value was up. Um, many practices had revenues 20% uh, or more over 2019. There was also a lot of demand. So the low interest rates made money cheap for the private equity firms that finance consolidation. And we now have about 50 or more consolidators that are competing for practices when they become available. I think another very important thing is that practices are much more widely shopped than they used to be. It wasn't, uh, it, it was not uncommon a few years ago when a practice came up for sale that there might be four or five prospective buyers, maybe a couple of associates or neighboring veterinarian, plus maybe one or two consolidators. But now we know that when the bigger practices go on the market, they're often shopped to 30 to 50 consolidators, which has led to values really going up. So the value of good general practices have, have increased to eight to 10 times EBITDA up from seven to eight times just a year or so ago. And specialty practices have, have really ramped up in value to about 12 to 15 times EBITDA uh, up from about 10 to 12. And, and we've even heard of heard of values well beyond that. And then there are a couple of environmental factors that we think are contribu contributing to consolidation. One is that um, with these high valuations, we think a lot of owners are make, want to make sure that they get in on it um, before maybe it, it slows down. So there's a kind of a, a, a fear of missing out type thing where they want to go ahead and sell when the selling is good. And then um, with the election last November, people anticipating that if there was a change in administration, there may be a change in, in tax loss. So wanting to, to get in on the most favorable tax um, environment that they could. So uh, all, we think all those really contributed to a, a banner year for consolidation last year.
that makes sense and uh, quite the statistics there and uh, it looks like the multiples are not gonna you know go down in the near future but with that degree of opportunity that everybody's exploiting right now with 50 i heard you know by our uh, statistics at bis we we counted i think 69 consolidators right now so there's there's quite a few and they're you know appearing every every day and um, you know that doesn't look like it's very sustainable especially the strategy of arbitrage only because there's two main sort of theses of consolidation one is you know uh, buy many practices at certain multiple and then sell them at a bigger multiple without too much of operational improvements so it looks like with this saturation of the market there might be uh it, it might be tough to just play with that just with arbitrage and some operational changes will be required for new consolidators that appear but uh, i have a question with that with um for, for kurt so you are you know you're obviously growing uh organically as a operator and you're you mentioned before you're not planning to sell in the near future so what are those benefits and and what's your sort of general attitude towards the consolidation or versus growing organically versus you know building your own empire if you will Sure. Yeah, I think honestly, right now, the number one reason why I stay owner operator is is the profit. I mean, uh, we, you know, when, when when practices are profiting twenty percent of their gross revenue year after year after year, it's it's nice just to keep that profit in my pocket for a while. Um, I'm not um, upset about about running a practice. I I enjoy the leadership opportunities. I enjoy being an entrepreneur. I enjoy creating structure, and I enjoy watching people grow professionally and personally. Um, so at that point, at this point in my life, uh, I'm really happy with where I am based on the fact that I'm totally in charge of my own culture and my practices. I'm totally in charge of every day-to-day and decision with a, I have a great leadership team that helps me make all those decisions and we're able to make them organically, as you said, uh, also locally, you know, so we run all of our, um, all of our decisions through our paradigms of our values and our vision and our planning. And, um, and we get to make those decisions on our own with a group of people that I completely trust. So, uh, profit keeps me, um, leadership allows me to be happy. And, um, you know, if I'm going to sell in the future, it's going to have to be to the right company that allows me to, to use my strengths, uh, where they were needed, or I'm going to have to have a, a different plan in my life. And I'm only 52. So, I guess my age is the third third category that keeps me uh, keeps me plugging along. Excellent. With the competition where it is right now, we we heard of the the numbers that each practice is nurtured as a lead, if you will, by 40 to 50 brokers today. So it's uh, you know it's a pretty tremendous inflow of calls in the hospital and how they manage them. John, you have a bit of statistics that you guys collected last year, I think, or this year about the, uh, the, the next year. So I wanted to maybe ask you to share those and I'm going to show those on my screen here. Hey, uh, thanks. So, so in uh, January of 2021, uh, we conducted a survey of, I think, around uh, 300 veteran practices. And, and one of the questions we asked is if they were likely to sell in 2021. And there were, I think, uh, 143 that answered that question. And, and 8% of them said yes, that they were likely to sell. Another 15% said that they may sell. But I, I think the 8% is, is probably the better number. And then we asked them if they were likely to sell to a consolidator, and that chart is on the, the right here. And um, on the one hand, it looks uh, like many of them were not planning to sell to a consolidator, but two things I point out here. One is that we're, we're dealing with a relatively small number of responses, so um, we can't take this data to the bank by any means. It's not projectable. 
But the other thing is when we look at who answered uh, these this uh, question, the the ones that the practices that were in the somewhat are highly likely to sell were the big practices and the ones that were um, in the not very likely or not at all likely to sell were uh, were much smaller in size. So, so even in this data, we see that that bigger practices are much more interested in and selling to consolidators. And of course, consolidators want the big practices, right? They're less interested in the one or two doctor practices. That makes sense. And um, yeah, this is this is interesting statistic. And you're right, the sample is maybe not that uh, uh, big, but uh, maybe a representative of uh, what's gonna happen in next year. I think I heard it in uh, in the course I recently took. The in God we trust, the rest bring data. So I think that this is the case, uh, John. With with that, why some consolidators are more attractive to the sellers than others? What are those specifics that uh, that help consolidators to kind of break through the noise of of this number of them? Yeah, interesting. Um, there are a number of factors. One is um, you know reputation. Some Consolidators have been added a lot longer than others, and uh, so they've become better known than than the newer ones. Um, size matters as well. Uh, those that the bigger consolidators have more people in the field that are out prospecting and calling on practices. They're they're more likely to to show up exhibiting at at veterinary conferences at at trade shows, and um, you know they just have had an opportunity to to establish their reputations. Now, that said, I think we see a number of smaller consolidators that are trying to get into the market. And I think one of the challenges is for those um, newer consolidators to differentiate themselves and, and to, to bring some new ideas or new concepts to the prospects, because it is a competition, as we pointed out earlier with the with the extent to which practices are shopped, each of the potential bidders is going to have to make a pretty strong case for why why they should be the prevailing buyer. Makes sense. Um, and and with that, um, I, we heard some feedback, you know, from the practices that that's being acquired or, or have been acquired is that uh, sometimes there is sort of a negative tone towards uh, consolidators that are not owned by previous operators or veterinarians as the background. So Kurt, your team is all veterinarian as management team. And and uh, do you think that has a competitive advantage, especially on the talent market? Because talent is, you know, is scarce uh, on both veterinary and staffing. So do you think that plays a role in uh, when you're looking for talent? I think, you know, there's a difference between recruitment and retention in our talent. And I, I, I truly believe that the consolidators have it over on us every single day when it comes to recruitment, uh, their abilities to, you know, to pass out a, a message nationally and to offer higher salaries and really, and honestly, I can meet their salaries, I, but I, what I can't oftentimes do is meet their benefits packages um, with pet, pet, pet employee discounts, uh, you know, health insurance, you know, other types of things. They're just, they're, their premiums are lower and just because they're of their size. So recruitment's always been a challenge for us. And, you know, at Cityway Animal Clinics, we've really spent the last year just beefing up our recruitment department and trying to get out there and get in front of these talent that are coming out that are graduating, new techs, new nurses, new veterinarians. Um, when, when it comes to an advantage for us is in the retention, for sure. I mean, I think we find uh, it over and over and over again that once someone comes to join our team, uh, and it's a family of, of, of locally local people who all know each other and uh, work well with each other, and we build a great culture, and we... Um, 
put a lot of pride in, in our values and our um, decisions that we make locally. Um, that's where I think we, we find an advantage is, is of keeping people. I, I, I talk to people every day who have been working at a, at, a, at a large corporation practice and um, they're, they're thinking about making a move because they just don't get the support that they need from their regional managers. They don't get the, yeah, the, the salaries there, the benefits are there, but the happiness maybe isn't there. And so we just try to tell them all the time, you know, think about joining a smaller team, someone who uh, you have access to. Not every single day, but they can call me, they can talk to me, they can text me. Uh, we can get answers to them pretty quickly. And that is is definitely an advantage for us. 100%. I love your differentiation. We just uh, had another uh, webinar that we did at another conference. We were talking about the uh, the happiness of veterinarians and why they're leaving the profession. Yeah. And the first sure. reason is work-life balance. And the second one is culture. It's mm -hmm. not the pay. The pay is number three. So that's yeah. uh, that's really important. And it seems like that's kind of coming up to the surface in your organization as well. Uh, let's talk a little bit about the future. Uh, John, a couple years ago, you, you did a presentation which you titled Veterinary Practice Consolidation, a Bubble or Long-Term Trend. So I would like to share the slide on this that you gave us and maybe talk a little bit about that. Yeah, so um, thank you. Uh, yeah, we, we, you know, we think that within a year or two, um, Corporations will, uh, on general practices, will go over that 25% of uh, total practice level. And, um, and when they get there, they're probably going to be doing about 50% of pet care. Um, one of the questions, again, we've worked on a number of recapitalizations. So one of the questions that always comes up is how much runway is left? And, um, you know, certainly we need to think of the market as being dynamic. The number of practices does increase and the number of three and four doctor practices does increase each year. But certainly, um, you know, typically about half of all practices have been one or two doctor. They're just not ideal for consolidation. There's a high degree of risk for consolidators. So they're going to pick from those, you know, the other, the 50% of the practices that are larger than that. And you know, the fact that the runway is getting shorter, I think, is, is, in, is, is indicated by the fact that now we see consolidators buying consolidators, right? So there are a number of the smaller consolidators have been acquired by, by bigger consolidators. And with, with the large number of consolidators out there, I think that's going to be a very significant trend. At the same time, we think there's a bright future for, for independent practitioners. Like Kurt said, we think that uh, locally owned practices, entrepreneurial veterinarians can do very, very well. And when I speak at veterinary conferences, I encourage associates interested in owning to, to look at those one or two doctor practices because those are, if they're in a good market, they can um, build on those and uh, have a very, very comfortable living. So, so we think there's that consolidation is going to continue with some shift towards uh, just shrinking the number of total consolidators in the uh, uh, but still a, a good opportunity for, for independent veterinarians. That's great. And um, so, so maybe a follow-up question to that. What we see in the UK right now, there's a total sort of frenzy in what happened in, you know, last four or five years. I remember I went to one conference, the London Vet Show, and it was 40% corporate, 60% independent. And then I went to the next one, it was the other way around. It was 60% corporate and then 40% private. So do you think that that sort of, can we compare those two geographies and kind of plot our you know, plateau when we get to it? 
north of 60 plus uh, percent? Yeah, I think the UK and Australia is another market that um, is is consolidating very, very, very rapidly. And, um, you know, one thing to keep in mind is these are, are countries which uh, with a much smaller number of, of veterinary practices, I'd say that uh, I can certainly envision a, a time in, in the not too many years in the future where consolidators may be doing 60% of the total pet care, getting up to 60% of total practices, which means that they'd probably be doing uh, 85% or more of the pet care. I'm not sure we're going to hit that mark, but, um, but certainly I think uh, we could get up into the 40, 45% range pretty easily. That makes sense. And, and with that, um, the groups need to differentiate themselves and they also need to be future-proof. I mean, I, I love the fact that veterinary medicine survived uh, COVID and proven to be immune to this virus. Uh, and that's why we have so much, so many pets and then the industry is growing. But with that, the, you know, what is the future-proof consolidator? And we've seen different uh, management styles and, you know, we work at VIS with multiple consolidators and uh, there's some groups that had um, a platform developed within it and some of them ad- adopted other platforms. So for example, uh, I know that Pathway adopted the uh, framework that Kurt, you're uh, operating your business with, and it's an uh, entrepreneurial operating system or attraction by uh, Gina Wickman. So can you elaborate a little bit more on that and this methodology and how it helped you to, to apply to your business and to scale? Sure. You know, I had a practice, uh, my first practice that I purchased, you know, I ran it just willy nilly, um, didn't really have a, a goals or um, a plan. And, you know, at the end of every month, there was money left in the bank. And so everything was copacetic and we were growing every year, 12 to 17% and was proud of that, proud of where I was practicing, proud of my patient care, pr- proud of all the things, except for just the way I was running my businesses. So when I, um, when I, when I started my companies in the downtown market of Indianapolis, Indiana, you know, I, uh, I made a, a, a solid, you know, idea to change how I was running my companies. And um, about two and a half to three years ago, we instituted the entrepreneur operating system, which, as you said, is a, is a book called Traction by Gino Wickman, wherein he uh, outlines an entire system of how to run any business from manufacturing to advertising to accounting to veterinary medicine. And I think that, unfortunately, our, our industry is uh, always a little bit um, conservative in terms of jumping in on new methodologies. And this is essentially a culmination of a lot of different methodologies and, and a lot of different books. Uh, you know, Gino did a great job of putting in a bridge version together of everything and just, and then giving you a very specific um, system in which to, to utilize it. So, you know, the system helps you set visions, your values, your goals. It helps you create accountability within your organization. It helps you create organization within your organization, because let's be frank, many organizations aren't very organized. You know, it helps you to analyze the data on a regular basis. It helps you create to-dos for all of your team members, things for them to be working on a regular basis. It helps you bring, bring your 10-year plan down into a three-year goal, into a one-year picture, and then uh, into, you know, 30-day rocks. And the rocks are essentially goals that each person on your team is working towards. And the accountability comes into play there. So as they're working on a major goal, um, everybody's helping them. Everybody's keeping them accountable. Everybody's saying, hey, are you going to finish this goal by June 30th or not? Where are we with this? 
Um, and then it also helps set processes, you know, so uh, yeah, city way we've got, we call it the city way way. And it's just way the way in which we do everything from how do we set up for to, to analyze a, a urine sample in our clinics to how do we greet a patient and a client coming in the door to how do we do end of life discussions. And so um, although it, it, it's not corporatized to the point where everybody has to play by every single role the same way, it's a scenario in which we are all working towards a common goal. And um, as the owner, as a CEO, as the founder of this company, that's my number one thing is just to, I want, I want to build a team that's all working towards a final goal. And uh, the entrepreneur operating system is, is the only methodology in my business career so far that has allowed me to be fully successful at that. That's excellent. I love traction. We applied it for probably every business in the last eight years I worked in, and uh, it was guys at VetSource. So they kind of, they suggested that to me a number of years ago, and then I adopted it for SmartFlow, and then we applied it at IDEX at the software division. It's, I think it's excellent. That's why we chose it at the core of consolidated operating framework that we created for consolidators. It's sort of like we try to create a cookbook for consolidation. So that's if anybody's interested, just uh, you can visit vetintegrations.com to get familiar with it. And it's not, you know, there's no silver bullet for everything, but it's sort of a guide that may help you to think that, oh, I didn't, you know, I didn't think about that. But with that, um, you know, any methodology is, uh, is really created to, uh, will outline the processes, make them scalable, and then set the goals and achieve them. So just like you described, Kurt. But with the scarcity of veterinarians and with the abundance of the pets, we're really reaching that point where the demand is much higher than supply. And that's really our danger sort of in the profession. And um, it seems like we're still very linear in the approach that we add more people, we can see more appointments, therefore we can produce more revenue. And my, my personal hypothesis is that we really need to you know, think outside of the box and rediscover the more scalable uh, workflows and more scalable operational sort of tactics that can help us to do more with less. And uh, we're not hiring veterinarians and pushing them to do more because we also have an issue of burnout and then pushing that to the limit. And it's really about discovering new sort of uh, processes and new workflows and new, maybe, uh, you know, maybe new uh, revenue elements. So John, do you see any trends in that direction, how to do more with less in our industry? Yeah. So I think, um, you know, the, the industry has struggled with a pretty inefficient business model for a long time and uh, has, has not worked as hard as other medical professions to figure out more, more efficient workflows. Uh, you know, certainly if you compare veterinary medicine to human medicine, where you may have three exam rooms for every doctor and a lot more of the work is done by nurses and that sort of thing. I think, you know, veterinarians uh, prefer to be very, very hands-on. And I think also um, veterinarians are kind of addicted to the idea of when someone calls for an appointment, they get they want to get them in tomorrow or the next day instead of stretching out appointments and utilizing some of the some of the typical downtime that time that happens in every week, whether it's Wednesday mornings or Thursday afternoons, whatever time tends to be less busy than others. I think if veterinarians can can get in the habit of scheduling appointments, uh, you know, routine uh, exams, annual exams, uh, two and three weeks out instead of tomorrow, I think that will will help work a little out a lot. I think another thing is that, um, you know, what I hear from young veterinarians is that, that they don't feel that, that their needs are as accommodated in many practices. If the practice has 20 minute appointments, um, 
somebody that's just a year out of school or less maybe needs 30 minutes per appointment. So I think, you know, considering um, the needs of individual practitioners, how they manage their time and, and what kind of support they have, I think those things are also very important. Yeah, that's, uh, that makes complete sense. And so, Kurt, in your experience, same sort of question, you know, do we, uh, how do we deal with the shortage of vets now? I know it's hard to hire and you mentioned there's some, you know, there's different ways to attract and retain, but is there way, is there, are there ways to, uh, to scale the processes so you kind of do more with less human capital? You know, I used to think that, um, you know, I used to be a big follower of, you know, Dr. Ernie Ward a long time ago talked about how you mobilize your staff and how you, you know, you alternate your schedule and 20 minute blocks. And so you, the doctors do diagnosis, prescribe and, and do surgery and that's it. And that was, it was easier in an environment where, you know, maybe veterinary technicians and veterinary assistants and helpers, you know, on the back, uh, lots of CSRs were available. And, um, you know, today in, you know, in a post COVID world, that's also a struggle. So not only are we struggling to find veterinary talent, but we're struggling to find qualified veterinary nurses and veterinary assistants to help with that back, back of the house, you know, processes. So, so the struggle is real right now, for sure. So, you know, we talk a lot about, as, as John was talking about, like, you know, spreading out time, um, spending more time with patients than less, you know, um, we, I've empowered my veterinary team to say no more often. Luckily I live in a metropolitan area that has, five to six, you know, 24 or seven veterinary clinics within a, a short drive. So if we can't see the patient, if it's not the best thing for the patient for us to squeeze them in when they're really, really sick, we, we empower our veterinary team to, to say, we just can't see you today. Uh, we analyze white space regularly, uh, weekly, you know, and my white space numbers are down. I mean, there's very few opportunities for people to see a veterinarian in my practice. And like, like John said, you know, strategic, you know, forward scheduling and things like that has helped, but you still get those people who call the, the day of and need to get in. And so we just have to make sure that we put patients first. That's our, that's our number one value. So, uh, yeah, no, I, I totally agree with your, uh, uh, and I, I'm more and more, I hear this is interesting about saying no and be actually selective about your customers. Uh, we always, I, you know, when I graduated, I, it, it was always, the customer is always right. You know, you do everything for the customer. But it's, I love that you are talking about, first of all, thinking about the patient, not just the customer, because the customer is annoyed or has to wait or whatever it is. Because I don't remember very often where we, you know, it's anywhere you call, it's two week wait time for spay or dental or anything like that. So it's definitely, definitely dem demand is overwhelming. I was just talking to a colleague of mine uh, in, uh, in the UK, and they're talking about the burnout angle of this. And they said that we're becoming very selective about our customers and they, uh, the, the wellness plans are in general, there's a, a big, uh, better adoption in Europe. So in the, in the UK, I think there's about 20% uh, adoption rate for insurance by the owners. And we're like at two, I think, but in some clinics, they actually start differentiating and say, if you can't, if you don't think that wellness plan that covers things that should be covered is a part of how much you want to care, you know, after your pet, then you're probably not the best customer for us. So they're actually being, you know, quite straightforward with the customers that, you know, if you're not a very good customer, then maybe we don't need you. So it's interesting how, you know, uh, this is changing in these days. 
uh, we also talked about, you know, because the, the revenues are shrinking because of, you know, the, the online pharmacies and now the Chewy and the Amazon and things like that. Is there anything sort of creative that uh, the clinics are doing right now? And it's sort of a question to both of you guys. New revenue streams, diversification into doing more, you know, spa sort of services. I know, Kurt, you have been uh, working with that. And, uh, you know, pharma sort of new workflows. I know there's a couple of startups that are doing sort of alternative route to online pharmacy is sort of like your own pharmacy, but still deliver at home. So are there new sort of revenue diversification for the better word that you guys can comment on either John or Kurt? We, we have a spa, as you said, um, it's, it's not profitable. It's, it's not a, a, a profit generator for us. We, we, it's not a, a loser, but it, uh, it, it stays pretty stable. Um, we, we do it because we uh, offer more services to our clients in the downtown area. We, we like to keep our people close and in the family. And so when they start seeking that elsewhere, you know, we just feel like we might have some lost opportunities there. Uh, our bigger push has been in professional services away from pharmaceuticals. You know, we've um, grabbed co completely the bull by the horns when it comes to online pharmacies through utilizing VetSource and, you know, script sharing, anything that we talk about, we just automatically send the client a, a prescription for that. And that has helped our revenues go up and as far as that goes. But but without all the work, you know, um, I think a, a practice that's too heavily loaded on pharmaceutical sales is, is, is also at a risk and consolidators aren't super excited about them because that revenue stream can go away any minute now. That's why we're talking about per heart six, per heart 12, you know, the, the, the products that, uh, can, you know, convenient injections that are, are, you know, only delivered by veterinarians. So that's, you know, what the people are paying us for, which is our professional opinion and, and the services that we can provide to them. So that's where we've focused most of our efforts on. And, you know, although I have a spa, it's, it's, it's just kind of a fun thing for us, honestly. <laughs> Yeah, so uh, you know, um, certainly, uh, certainly in our data, we've we've seen the growth of the home delivery market for and online ordering for veterinarians, and uh, uh, now I think we're seeing like seventy percent of practices have that service, and they're working through companies like Vet Sources, Kurt mentioned, or Covetris, or uh, My Vet Store. I think there's a couple of other ones that are that are smaller. I live in downtown Chicago, and um, one of the things I see is veterinary practices offering ancillary services. So there is uh, one practice I see their van go by where they offer pickup and delivery of pets for uh, either appointments or for their kennel, their daycare. We also, you know, see um, on-site grooming vans where vans will go to the the home and and uh, do the give give the pet a shampoo do the do the grooming on on the pet owner's site and then there's some in-home services where uh, when you get into highly dense highly densely populated neighborhoods where you know there may be hundreds of pet owners in a high-rise building uh, we see some veterinarians offering uh, their in-home services there so those are ways that that veterinarians are expanding their footprint and um, I also remember uh, talking to a veterinarian this in in Dallas, Texas, this was probably about three years ago, but they got into the um, vaccine service business where they go to an HEB uh, grocery store or whatever and set up on a Saturday. And they weren't using it as, um, as, a, as a competition with their regular practice. They were using it to, I, to identify pet owners that, weren't, didn't, that didn't have a regular veterinary practice. And so they were you know, doing a preliminary exam on a pet and using that to bring pets into the practice. And I'm not sure how many 
how many uh, practices these days are looking for new ways of generating business, but um, but certainly those things can. Makes sense. Uh, there are a couple of questions from the audience that I thought were um, interesting and, and a good conversation to have. So one of them, and I think there's a couple of people asked, what can console leaders do to make vets uh, want to work for them? So to better diners that are, are, are selling to the consolidators or you're saying once they're consolidated, how can they recruit other veterinarians? New I, I think it's more of the latter. Yeah. Just uh, how do they recruit so people want to work for them more? Well, I know how they're recruiting now. Like I said earlier, they're offering higher salaries and they're giving better benefits. I think that what they need to do is to work on mentorship and, and leadership growth potential for their people. And, um, and actually also identifying, you know, during the interview process, if that's something that the, that the candidate wants or desires, you know, I'm going to go a little off topic here, but I think that the, where I'm frustrated is I don't know that we're looking for those types of candidates when we're matriculating them from undergrad to, to veterinary school now. I, I wish veterinary schools would do a little bit better job of, of, of seeking out the type of candidates who are interested in clinical practice and interested in business ownership and business management and leadership, you know, stylings, because um, when we continue to admit students who have very little desire to practice clinical veterinary medicine in the future, we, then we wonder why we have a shortage of veterinarians 10 years later. Uh, I, I feel like that, that, that rides on the, on the veterinary schools. So consolidators could do the same. You know, I know that's one of the things, you know, we put every one of our new graduates, uh, any, any new hire uh, through a mentorship program. You know, the, 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 the support staff does their own version, the CSRs do their own version and the veterinarians have their own version. And we talk a lot about professional growth and leadership and, and mentorship and how to communicate. So that's what we're doing. I think that the consolidators could, could mimic what I do a little bit better perhaps. Yeah, I think it depends. I agree with Kurt. I think it depends on the consolidator to, to uh, some extent. Some of them, I think, do a very, very good job of operations, even some of the very, very large ones. Um, and I think one of the things that a, a company can do, a consolidator can do, is to offer a clear-cut career path to veterinarians. You know, when you have an organization that uh, covers multiple locations and has a, has a you know, corporate infrastructure, you know, those veterinarians that, that seek to go into management someday can, if there's a career path opportunity there, you know, they can uh, mentor them and towards that if, and many consolidators now are offering ownership opportunities where veterinarians can, can have ownership either in the company as a whole or in the particular location where they practice. So they, I do think there are a number of tools that consolidators and any practice can can uh, use, as Kurt said, to make sure that they're really, you know, productive, uh, welcoming and growth work environment for for veterinarians and staff for that matter. I think one of the soft underbellies of, of practice is that we haven't offered career paths to, to non-veterinarians. So it's hard for them to see once they start as high school kids, how they could possibly work there when they're 30 years old, right? Because how can they make, you know, how can they survive on the kind of salaries? And I think that some practices have done a better job of that. Yeah, no, absolutely. I, I agree with both of you guys. We just yesterday had a pretty uh, advanced conversation about this as if you look at our profession, technicians are not going beyond sort of 30 years old. So that means that our profession cannot offer enough pay for people for, for adult life. You can't sustain, uh, you know, with, uh, with the technician salary. So definitely uh, probably a compensated matter of staff technicians that do most of the work and 
my opinion. And then basically what you said, Kurt, I really like that finding out what people want. And we've been talking a lot about this in several webinars by VIS, but it's really understanding the intrinsic motivation of the person because it's always different for different people. You know, everybody gets a job to get paid, but what is it that drives you to come to work and actually want to stay here for long-term. And I think that this is very, it's extremely important to have, you know, the series of webinars that we're doing is called Leading with Purpose, is if your purpose and if your goal of the organization is aligned with the intrinsic motivation of the person, that's the key to having happy people working for you and, and sharing your purpose. But if your purpose is to recap in two years, that's not the purpose that they have. So unfortunately, there's a very little buy-in to that and then people can leave. Sure, you can throw money at them for a certain period of time, but after you're 75K and over, the statistics show that we're, you know, that we're not very much motivated because that meets the basic needs. So yeah, no, absolutely, I, I agree with you guys. Um, there's another interesting question here, a slightly different angle on this sort of lab services. So uh, the question is uh, from Rachel, I've seen a lot of practices underutilize their laboratory services. Are consolidators considering leveraging the lab? I think that, you know, many consolidators focus on standards of care and, and uh, they tend to be pretty good customers for some of the diagnostic companies. And, and uh, yeah, I mean, I think, you know, diagnostics are one of the services that clients have a hard time saying no to because you can present a pretty good rationale for, for why this pet needs, uh, needs blood work. And, and particularly, you know, all the things that a lot of veterans were taught in, in school, but maybe didn't practice like pre-anesthesia blood work, even for, for young pets and that sort of thing. So I think that, you know, leveraging that is, uh, is a very important revenue source. And I think when I, when I looked at, um, you know, data from some of the consolidators, uh, some of them do a pretty good job of, of leveraging diagnostics and not just uh, blood work and urinalysis and those things, but also uh, radiology. I think a lot of that comes back to just, are they measuring their work? You know, um, uh, do you have a, do you have someone on your team, on the leadership team who's, uh, who's looking at data and, and deciding that, hey, you know, it seems like we're doing the right amount of diagnostics. It seems like we're doing enough blood work. It seems like we're taking enough x-rays, doing enough ultrasounds. But when you start to look at the actual data, you'll see that your, you know, your, your profit or your margins, as far as like the, um, you know, the, as, as a compared to gross revenue, perhaps maybe your, you know, your radiology is down on the two or 3% category. And it should really be four to 6% of your, of your gross revenue. And, and when you identify that, you know, it's a simple fix, either you're not charging enough for your x-rays or your ultrasounds, or you're not doing enough of them. And, uh, and if you take that, that opportunity to look at that data and, and have a healthy discussion with your doctoral staff, all in one is my suggestion, you know, meet regularly. You know, our doctors have a, have a, a monthly meeting where they can share their ideas. And, and there's a little bit of, of data crunching that happens there. Um, you know, say, hey, guys, it, it, it appears that at one of our practices, we're not doing enough radiology. Is that because you don't like the machine? Is that because the caseload? Is that because... What is it? You know, because as compared to another one that's in you know, it's two miles away, it, it's quite vastly different numbers. And so that's been helpful to us. And, I, and those are things I didn't do in the first 10 years of owning a, owning a practice. It was just like whatever came across on, on the appointment schedule, we just did it. And that was it. But we didn't actually plan for things. So, yeah. I, I cannot agree more. I think that what we're seeing more and more in consolidation is that the, the data that they're looking at, for the most part, stays at the corporate level. Yeah. And, and I've been always surprised how 
the organization that measures their productivity based on a certain metrics doesn't provide those metrics to people that generate those metrics. So essentially you're, you know, you're, you're getting them once a quarter with a month delay because of our data that it is in the veterinary domain. And then after that, you're presenting it to people post factum, and then they just can't, you know, care about that. So, you know, the, one of the things that we're doing at the IS, we have this product that we're about to launch that actually serves the right data to right people at the right time. You can always look in your pocket in your phone and see, okay, what are those metrics that we all agreed as an organization that we're going to follow? And it's not necessarily that you have to tie the uh, compensation to the metrics, but productivity and do you fit into our team? I think it's very important because I love that you you know compared your team um, uh, to family. I like that. I like to refer to the team as well as the team like a sports team because we love everybody. But if you don't you know play <laughs> to the certain level, then that you don't fit in our team. And I think that that's very important. A lot of uh, operators, though, they're shy to serve metrics to veterinarians. Some veterinarians don't like to see metrics, but it's usually those that are not performing well. So maybe it is the people that you need to, you know, to inform about that. And uh, remembering that veterinary medicine is, you know, it is a sort form of art. <laughs> I, I love, you know, the emergency and everything else, but it does generate revenue and it feeds the people that are on the team and, uh, and you know, it generates for the company overall. So I think I think that's very important to have the right data in the right hands. And uh, back to the lab, I think um, I love the comment. I want to quote, uh, I don't know if John Ayers stole it from someone who came out with it, uh, but I had a pleasure working with John Ayers uh, when he was the CEO uh, of IDEX uh, in, in my year at IDEX. And I remember one thing that he kept saying about blood work, and I thought it was phenomenal that that uh, lab work uh, gives, gives the sort of the ability to the pet to talk to their owners. You're interpreting what's going on with them. And I thought that was brilliant, especially for artists because they're 95% of business is lab work, but that's true. You know, if you don't know, your dog can tell you that it's slightly uncomfortable somewhere. But if you take the blood work and you have quite sensitive tests that can detect early kidney disease, liver disease, and, you know, everything else, then you're really kind of monitoring your pet to a different level. And back to sort of wellness plans, if that's very well articulated to the owners, and then that wellness plan includes the annual lab work. I think that closes the loop on, you know, on the care paths that we're expecting from our owners and everything else. So, yeah, I, um, I really like that uh, from John Ayers. So, so yeah, I agree with that. I, I'd like to circle back just briefly on something Kurt said, that's the data sharing. I, I think that, you know, I, I've worked in the business for a long, long time and I've seen a lot of, a lot of companies. And, and to me, one of the things that really differentiates companies is, is how much information they give their employees and most of the really good, well-managed companies that I've worked with are companies that they tell their employees everything. I mean, they just are very open about how the business is doing, how they're measuring their progress. And, and it's not always about revenue. I mean, it, it can be, you know, how they, how they measure up on employee benefits or, you know, what, you know, what their policies are and how those are, how those generate data. You know, the, the uh, number of, days lost to illness or, or sickness, those kinds of things. And I think the more information that employees have about the operation of the business down at the practice level, the more they can see themselves in the practice and how they impact those numbers. Absolutely. I agree with that. Uh, there's another question here on, uh, I think it's, uh, it's a very good one. Uh, what do ownership opportunities look like for recent veterinary graduates, given the consolidation trend in the veterinary medicine? 
I, I tell people every day that when I recruit is that you have the opportunity to be a part of this company going forward. But I have a, I have a very, very clear 10 year plan that I've placed in place mainly for myself and for my family um, of retirement and, and leaving this company and, and, and getting paid for what I've, what I've built. Um, and I tell them, you know, with the right group of people, uh, and, and as we talked about earlier, they don't have to all be veterinarians. You know, you can, you can structure it in such a way that the non-veterinary professionals can have a, have a piece of the pie. Um, and I think we should be heralding that, you know, more often, uh, I have a chief operating officer who's been with me for, you know, upwards of nine years. He started as a kennel kid, you know, uh, 11 years ago. Um, and, um, and now he's my second in command and, and he's, he's extremely awesome. valuable to me and, and he's very important to our company. And, and I hope and pray that someday he'll have, um, a, a bigger pie piece of the pie that he has right now. Um, that, that's, that's something that we as private owners can offer comparative to going to work for VCA or Banfield tomorrow. You're never going to be a leader or an owner there. And, and if, they, if you think you are, that's, it's not going to happen. So, so maybe I, I misspoke about the Banfield opportunity it does have some, some, um, some ownership opportunities, but you're not going to be able to owner of VCA. That's where we are. That's, that's how we recruit. That's how we stand apart, you know, for sure is, is, is encouraging entrepreneurship. And, and, if, and if you have good books, if we're profiting as well as we're profiting, you know, banks will, will loan the money to the people who need it for sure. Yeah. John, do you have a comment yeah, I, on that? I think, uh, I think there are excellent ownership opportunities for, for uh, veterinarians. And, uh, you know, of all the professional categories, veterinarians have among the lowest risk for, for lenders. So getting money to buy or start a practice is, is not that challenging. Uh, I sometimes humorously say that if, that if you have a DVM degree and can fog a mirror, you can get a loan for, for a practice. And, <laughs> That's good. Yeah. Uh, and, um, but I think, again, um, they're just excellent. And uh, when I, again, when I speak at conferences, I encourage young veterinarians to, to seek ownership because um, it, uh, because overall owners make more than, than associates. And um, with uh, levels of student debt that, that people have coming out of uh, vet school, you know, they can pay off that debt faster if they're getting owner money versus associate money. And I think that one of the things that's differentiating some of the consolidators is that they're providing ownership opportunities to um, some of their associates. And that is differentiating them from, from those that, that don't have any mechanism for that. Absolutely. Yeah, I just, uh, yeah, I think that that's, that's an important factor. And I love what you're doing, Kurt, in your organization. And I think that uh, the, the inclusion of the veterinary staff is sort of the destiny where the consolidation is going to, because we will have shortage of those as well, especially if we have such a short window of people that are getting into that profession and, and qualified, and then they retire because from this profession, because they can't sustain their um, there is spent on, on this. So I think that the business models that will include um, everybody into sort of sharing the pie, I think this is what we're seeing uh, in the near future. And uh, so uh, we have another question on, so if something, and I think John, maybe that's to you or for both of you guys. So rapid consolidation, and then this is, you know, frothy environment, the multiples are high. If something can slow down the consolidation of clinics, what is it? Well, there's two two things I think. Um, one is that all the good clinics that want to sell will have been acquired, right? And not all of them are going to want to sell. So, a lot of people like Kurt are going to remain are going to want to remain independent for a long time. So, um, we don't have an infinite we don't have an infinite number of practices. The other thing that you know 
uh, we've been blessed with having really good private equity partners in consolidating veterinary practices. We have not had any implosions and um, like at least any sizable. And some industries have gone through that where a private equity firm comes in, loads a newly acquired company with a lot of debt and then drives it into the ground and, and takes a lot of money and fees and that sort of thing. And I think given the nature of veterinarians and their sensitivity towards debt repayment and so forth, if, if we had an implosion of a, a major consolidator because of poor private equity practices, I think that would really almost stop the desire of veterinarians to, to sell to a private equity backed company. But again, I haven't seen that happen. Again, I've worked with many of the private equity companies and they're really um, good, good uh, managers. And I don't expect that to happen, but if it did, I think that would have a big impact on the profession. Thank you. Kurt, I, do you have I, any? I go, back, yeah, I go back to my earlier discussion about uh, veterinary schools need to do better. We, we are graduating graduates every single year um, who don't even know what they want to do. We're, we're forcing them into scenarios. Well, the veterinary schools are, are highly suggesting scenarios that aren't really ripe for, for uh, fighting consolidators. You know, we're not encouraging business ownership. We're not encouraging business management courses. We're not teaching them anything about business at all. And, uh, and, we're, and, and I hear over and over and over again that we're telling, uh, we, we, I say the, the, the profession, and, I, and, I, and I'm specifically talking about the veterinary uh, school um, administrators and, and people who are telling this, who have access to the students are telling them, you know, you have to find a, a job that has a commission-based salary. And I don't believe that's the truth. And, and, and I don't think that we should be forcing every single um, kid who wants to practice uh, in clinical practice to be a specialist either. You know, we need general practitioners and we need owners. And, 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 I, and I'm really proud of this profession and I'm proud of how we were able to serve our, our patients um, at a local and organic level. And, and if these trends continue and we, and we continue to, to, to choose the wrong students who, who don't care about the profession 30 years from now, then the profession will look quite differently in 30 years. No doubt about it. Absolutely. Yeah, no, I agree with that. The, uh, the quality of the students that we have both from business perspective, as well as the professional uh, skills, I think it's sort of, you know, it, it's changing, uh, to say the least. And uh, the, you know, especially on like skills like surgery, that's, that's been a big challenge, I think that we're graduating veterinarians that are not. Zero um, surgery. But it, yeah, absolutely. And I, I think it's also related to sort of the generation. Uh, I've been talking about this in some other webinars. And I think that sort of the, the majority of veterinarians right now are in sort of that millennial uh, time frame and, uh, and, and they just care more about work-life balance and there's different ethics to work, I think, that, uh, that, they're, uh, that they're valuing. So, well, with that, uh, I want to thank you, gentlemen, for uh, participation. Uh, this has been great. Uh, thank you for your time and uh, thank you for your expertise added to this webinar. You bet. Thanks very much. Thank you so much for listening to Consolidate That. If you want to hear our new episodes, please find us on any podcast platform. Also, you can learn more about us on our website at vetintegrations.com.